Right, thank you, John. Yeah, apologies for the voice. Um, I hope it's not too much of a distraction. I can assure you it sounds infinitely worse than it actually feels. And I've got John poised here like a, a finely coiled spring. If the voice collapses completely, he will leap into action and will take over at the very next word on what I've got uh, typed here. So every so often I'll just do this and I'll keep going fine. Now, I've been thinking deep thoughts, and I've come to the conclusion what the world needs now is a history lesson. So here goes. <laughs> About a thousand years ago, a group of Vikings led by Eric the Red set sail from Norway for Greenland. Now, Greenland was a bleak, uninhabited island. But the Viking colonists thrived there and they reached a population of 5,000 people. And that population last, lasted there for 450 years. And then quite suddenly, they vanished. You see, what had happened, their precious cattle had grazed the fertile but very thin soil of Greenland into complete oblivion. The wind and the water carried away the topsoil, and the Vikings starved to death. And when archaeologists looked through the ruins of the Viking settlements on Greenland, they found the bones of newborn calves, meaning that in their final winter, the Vikings had given up on the future. They were eating the young calves of the future. They found the bones from cows, suggesting that the Vikings um, ate the cattle right down to the very hooves. And they found the bones of dogs covered with knife marks, indicating that in the end, the Vikings had to eat their own pets. Now, all this happened despite the fact that they were actually sitting on top of one of the richest sources of food in the world, an ocean teeming with fish. The problem was that the Vikings had never used fish as a source of food. And it seems that right until the point when they starved to death, they refused to save themselves by changing a lifestyle that went back countless generations. I think they're a real-life example of the claim that people often prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. They prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. And if you and I are honest, we ourselves often resist change unless we can control that change. So as John said, we're beginning a series on the life of Abraham. And it begins in the passage we've just heard, with Abraham facing and accepting a step into the unknown. Now before we look at this, let's briefly sketch in the background. Abraham, as he was first called, lived about 4,000 years ago. So that's roughly the time when the Chinese were building up 
ruling dynasties, when the first settlers were planting corn in North America, and when Stonehenge was being constructed in Wiltshire. Abraham himself was born and grew up in the city of Ur, which is in modern-day Iraq. Ur was a sophisticated city, but it was also a stronghold for the worship of idols. And Abraham's step into the unknown began when, in chapter 11, verse 31, his father Terah left Ur, along with Abraham and other members of the family. Their destination was Canaan, modern-day Israel. But they settled a long way short of that destination in a place called Haran. And who could blame them? Their journey to Haran took them along the lush valley of the river Euphrates to a place where there was rich pasture land. But beyond Haran, the route to Canaan veered away from the river and it went across the barren wastes of the desert. And because of that, it's quite possible that Abraham might never have lived out, might have lived out his remaining years at Haran, and he might have been lost to history, but for the intervention of God in verse 1 of chapter 12. God spoke to him, he said, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Verse 4 simply says that faced with the prospect of a journey into the unknown, Abraham left. But I wonder what thoughts were going through the minds of his family members as he took them with him. What can we find anywhere else that we haven't got here already? What about the dangers of the desert, the climate, the bands of robbers? And what kind of place is this Canaan that we're heading to? And when we get there, where are we going to settle? Will the existing inhabitants welcome us with open arms or more likely force us out by violence? Today, most of us struggle with change which isn't our own idea. But of course, we all have to face it at some time or another. Maybe it's a change of home and circumstance due to job demands. Maybe it's a change in our financial circumstances due to the loss of a job. Maybe it's coping with a quiet, tidy home when our children grow up and move away. Maybe it's a change from being married to being divorced or widowed. Maybe it's a loss of self-identity when we move from paid employment to retirement. Or maybe it's a change from good health to growing infirmity. It's no different in the life of the church. Our message doesn't change. But there's much that we do so differently today compared with a generation ago in order to communicate the message. And crucially, that change is ongoing. We need constantly to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that we recognize 
when God is wanting us to do a new thing. The problem is that when we're faced with a step into the unknown, we're often held back by thoughts of the way we've always done things. When God challenges us with change, it can often seem as illogical to our way of thinking as Abraham's hazardous journey from comfort to uncertainty. But that attitude can be a sign of spiritual immaturity. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes, Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is head, ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. We're more likely to respond to a call from God to step into the unknown if, like Abraham and Paul, we understand the urgency of God's call. I came across a, a quote from St. Francis de Sales. He wrote, When the house is on fire, people are ready to throw everything out of the window. And when the heart is full of God's true love, people will count everything else as worthless. God's call to Abraham to step into the unknown follows a pattern that we see repeatedly through the Bible. The call comes not at the level of the mind with a reason, but at the level of faith and obedience, and it comes with a promise. So the call in chapter 12, verse 1, is leave your country. There's no explanation why Abraham should do this, but the promise is in verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Just so in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, we read about the, the step into the unknown to which God calls all who would be Christians. He calls us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, there's no reason why we should do so. But then there is the promise. You will be saved. And in the last two verses of Matthew's Gospel, at the very end of Jesus' ministry on earth, his call to his followers is to step into the unknown of ministry. Go and make disciples of all nations. And again, he gives no reason why they should do this. But he does give this promise. I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, in human terms, there was no certainty that God's promise to Abraham in verses 2 and 3 would be fulfilled. Because as verse 6 points out, the Canaanites were in the land. 
Now, the Canaanites had powerful chieftains, flourishing towns, the elements of civilization. They weren't wandering tribespeople. They'd settled, they'd put down roots, and every day built up their power and made it more unlikely that they could be overcome by the descendants of a childless shepherd. When the future is uncertain, we, like Abraham, need to claim the promises of God. Not man-made fantasies of health, wealth, and happiness, but the promises which are scattered throughout the Bible. Promises which have been tested and proved by countless generations before us. Abraham took God's promise to him at face value and set in train a series of events which to this day make him a revered figure both to Christians and Jews and Muslims. And I want to suggest that we can learn four basic lessons by the way that Abraham responded to God's call to step into the unknown. And the first is simply this. Go forward. When God calls us to leave what is familiar and to step into the unknown, the temptation is to retreat. But if the call to move from comfort and convenience is from God, it will be so that we can be more fruitful in serving him. I came recently on an inspiring example of this go-forward attitude. This lady, Joy Johnson, was a committed Christian. Up to the age of 61, she didn't do anything out of the ordinary in the way of exercise. But then she took up running marathons at the age of 61. At the age of 64... She recorded her best ever time, three hours, 55 minutes. And every day except Sunday, she would get up at four o'clock and run eight miles before breakfast, worshipping God along the way with hymns and songs. In 2013, at the tender age of 86, she took part in her 25th New York Marathon. She completed the race despite falling after 20 miles. Then she went to her hotel room, lay down, and never woke up again. But what an example of a go-forward attitude. That at a time of life when many of us are reaching for our slippers, she took up something new and challenging. And when God called Abraham to go forward into the unknown, Abraham responded with what you might call a holy boldness, confident that God was going to be with him all the way. I wonder, could you, could I, could we as a church be like Abraham in that respect? Now, the second lesson that we can learn from Abraham's response to the call of God is this, trust in God's sovereignty. When the call of God to us, whether as individuals or as a church, is to move forward, 
there'll be a cost. At the very least, there's the cost of the break with the past. But just as a bird can't fly if it clings to the comfort of the nest, and a child can't swim if it clings to its parents, so if we cling to the comforts of what is familiar, we can't fully test the reality of the promises of God. You know, this attitude of Abraham is commended in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, where we read, Abraham made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham prospered in Canaan, but to the end of his life, he lived in a tent. He didn't cling to his wealth, and he didn't let it stifle him. And I wonder how many of us struggle to trust God's sovereignty in practical ways because we're caught up in the materialism of our age. Where does our trust ultimately lie? Is it in our wealth so that we can buy our way out of difficulty? Is it in our skills and talents so that we can manoeuvre our way out of difficulty? Or is it in the sovereignty of God so that we allow ourselves to be guided by him? There's a third lesson we can learn from Abraham, and it's this. Simply follow God's leading. Many years later, at the time of Moses, Abraham's descendants also journeyed to Canaan, this time from slavery in Egypt. But they lost their way, both literally and spiritually, and they ended up wandering through the desert for many years. Now, that doesn't seem to have been the case with Abraham. Each time he stopped at different places, we read that he built an altar to the Lord. See verses 7 and 9. And what was the altar all about? It was a sign of Abraham's worship of God and his willingness to follow God's leading. Many centuries later, the Pilgrim Fathers fled from religious persecution in this country and they settled in North America. And they followed the example of Abraham. And even before they built homes, they built altars to thank God for their safe arrival and to commit to him their lives in the new world. And I wonder what can we learn about the importance of a daily attitude of worship. I don't mean coming to church every day, but taking time to offer to God our private praise, and to commit to him whatever the day holds. Joy Johnson's daughter described her, her mother as a happy runner because even at the alarmingly early time that she began each day, she committed that day to her Lord. And then there's a final lesson that we can learn from Abraham, and it's this. Be a blessing. In verse 2, God told Abraham, step into the unknown and I will bless you and you 
will be a blessing. And that's exactly the way that God has operated down the centuries. He blesses us so that we may be a blessing to others. Just a couple of weeks ago, we finished a sermon series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And again and again, we were reminded that those gifts are given not for the amusement of individuals, but for the benefit of others. Abraham was promised, all people on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, by his godly behavior, was a blessing to others during his lifetime. But God's promise was fulfilled supremely about 2,000 years later, when one of Abraham's descendants was born in a stable in Bethlehem. And through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new way was opened up between humankind and God. Well, to put it mildly, it's most unlikely that you or I will be such a blessing as Abraham was to others. Indeed, some of us may struggle to imagine ourselves being any kind of blessing to others. But I'm reminded of an incident in the life of Robert Louis Stevenson. At the age of 12, he was watching from his bedroom window as a man lit the gas lamps in the street. And his governess came into the room and asked what he was doing. I'm watching a man cut holes in the darkness. And you know, that's a pretty good phrase to describe how God calls us as individuals and as a church to be a blessing to others by our prayers, by our words and by our actions to cut holes in the darkness of other people's lives. Abram obeyed God's call to step into the unknown and God honoured him. And I wonder how prepared you and I are to follow Abraham's example. I want to close with a prayer written by a man who experienced more than his fair share of upheaval in the course of a very eventful life. Amongst other things, Sir Francis Drake led the first expedition to circle the globe. And he played a prominent role in defeating the Spanish Armada. And his prayer goes like this. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we've dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we've sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we've lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we've ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we've allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. And disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land 
we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hope and to push us into the future in strength, courage, hope and love. Amen.